Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Keeping It Independent, a podcast brought to you by Whiffles Hybrids. My name is Jared Goplin. I'm an agronomy manager with Whiffles, covering southwest Minnesota, eastern South Dakota, northwest Iowa. And uh, I guess I'm really excited about this episode here. It's uh, my first chance on the podcast to bring in a special guest, and uh, we're able to uh, bring in Dan Kaiser. Uh, Dr. Dan Kaiser is a uh, professor of uh, soil fertility at the University of Minnesota, uh, works in the extension program as well. And of course, I had a, a chance to work with Dan uh, a little bit while I was at the University of Minnesota, uh, both in extension. And, and Dan, if you remember, I actually, I think you were the first person I talked to on the phone when I was looking to go to grad school at the U of M. I still remember sitting in my crappy little dorm room uh, talking to you on the phone. So I uh, appreciate for, for taking my call. So that's kind of my first memory of you. And I'm uh, really excited to bring you on uh, onto the podcast here. Gosh, a lot of years later, I guess. So Dan, you've been at the U of M for what, 50, over 15 years now, probably? Yeah, so I started here in, um, it had been late 2007 in October, well, it actually, or late September 2007. So my first actual year doing research was 2008. So that would put it, you know, I think just a little over 15 years now that I've been in Minnesota doing research on uh, crop production here in the state. And if I remember, you uh, you had uh, done all your degrees at Iowa State, right? So, um, of course, uh, Wiffle's big part of our footprint is uh, is Iowa, so that'll make a lot of those guys, those Iowa State fans, uh, happy. But if you want to give a little more of your background, kind of where you're from and and uh, where you've come to get to the University of Minnesota, that'd be great. So yeah, Jared, as you said, I did all my degrees at Iowa State. I'm actually from Nate from Iowa, from uh, the Waverly area. So I grew up on a farm there. Went to Iowa State. Um, and then moved up to Minnesota, which was kind of nice. It wasn't as, as big of a transition moving up from Iowa to here, although um, the cropping rotations up here are far more diverse than I'm used to or was used to in Iowa. So, I mean, a lot of the work I did down there was on uh, starter fertilizer management in one of my master's projects. And then my Ph.D. work was looking at incorporating poultry litter into corn and soybean rotations. And I was looking at the phosphorus aspect and um so as I said, I came up here in uh, late 2007. I started research um, in Minnesota in 2008. Um, you know, one of the topics we're going to talk about today is sulfur. That was one of my initial studies. I actually had a few studies on sulfur when I first came up, and not didn't really know a lot about it then. Um, Iowa, there was some work that John Sawyer was doing in uh, particularly northeast Iowa on some of the more eroded silt loam soils in there that are finding some responses and. There's a few consultants kind of were bending my ear at that point in time. So we put some projects in looking at sulfur management. So it's been one of the, the interesting facets of my research, um, just looking at what we're seeing for yield responses early on. It was pretty interesting to see. And it's nice to kind of show growers you're walking around some of the large yield responses we're getting now. It isn't quite as much now. And I think I'll, I'll talk about that here in a little bit and kind of what I think is happening. But um but it's been one of the bigger components of that. So, I mean, my job here at Minnesota, I work with the fertilizer guidelines. So um, I don't work a lot with nitrogen. Um, nitrogen corn production, Fabian Fernandez is my counterpart here. He spends a lot more time than I do. But um, I handle pretty much uh, statewide um, the soil fertility, anything related to extension in that topic from pretty much across the state. So I'm located in the St. Paul campus, um, do all my research out of here, but uh, we've got plots right now all the way up at Rosso and all the way uh, southeast of Rochester. So kind of cover a, a pretty wide area with some of what I do. Yeah. So uh, those of those listeners of ours who are not from Minnesota, Rosso is basically on the Canadian border. Um, and it's a, it's a lot of miles, uh, probably about eight or nine hours between those sites, if not more. 
Um, so definitely a big, uh, big area. I uh, did want to make a plug for you. We were commenting uh, earlier, uh, I guess, uh, on your uh, your nice audio equipment you've got there. So you guys do put together a nice podcast as part of your extension efforts. Uh, the Nutrient Management Podcast, if I remember right, is what, what you call it, right? So uh, great, another great resource for any of our listeners, I guess. I know I, I tend to listen to most of those uh, when they come out. So appreciate those and, and all of your other efforts out there. So um, but yeah, the first topic, uh, we're going to talk about three, uh, three of the nutrients that maybe don't get quite as much attention. Um, uh, as always, I guess, um, the first is sulfur, and then we'll talk a little bit on boron and zinc as well. So we already talked a little on sulfur and, uh, Dan, I guess sulfur is one of those that I always found, um, you know, pretty interesting just, uh, with some of the history there with some of the diesel emissions and things. So if you want to kind of paint a picture on sulfur, you know, why is it important and, you know, why is, uh, paying attention to sulfur more important now than it was, you know, say 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Well, sulfur is a main macronutrient like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Actually, the uptake of sulfur, it's you, you get in a corn crop probably around 25 to 30 pounds taken up per acre per year um, from a, from just kind of an average or above average crop. So it's important. Um, it's a key component of some of the proteins, um, two of them in particular, cysteine and methionine. Um, it doesn't necessarily impact protein that much, although it can impact nitrogen utilization. And that's one of the interesting things we've seen with the, some of our research. There's some of our recent research trials is uh, if you look at some of the plots, um, they can be horribly sulfur deficient early in the season, but if they're kind of marginally nitrogen deficient, it tends to push them even more nitrogen deficient. And we actually can see some pretty significant interaction between the two. I've got a few trials actually, I get 60, 70, 80 bushel yield response to sulfur. And I think a lot of that just has to deal with how it's impacting nitrogen utilization. So it's important for um, crop production that it's there. Um, Traditionally, uh, a lot of people talk about the acid rain uh, and sulfate coming through rainfall, which was a key component of sulfur. But one of the things about sulfur is there's a lot of other incidental sources, sources where sulfur was in um, what's being applied to the the gr- uh, a crop, but it wasn't necessarily accounted for. I mean, there still is somewhat with um, MAP, DAP, uh, triple superphosphate, the, the phosphate fertilizer sources. Um, there's, there's about 2%. I'm generally finding um, total sulfur in those um, still some of those products that isn't accounted for in the actual um, analysis and the companies aren't going to account for it because it's not consistent, but it's, it's available sulfur. And it's kind of interesting looking at that because I know just from some data I've had that we can get a response to it. So I know what's available with that. So it's, it's all of these little things that were being, where it was being applied. Then I would think livestock too, we're more livestock on the landscape, uh, more manure that, really didn't necessitate the need for sulfur to be applied. But um, now with some differences, crop rotations, um, continuous corn, I see a little bit a stronger response just because of the residue aspect. We can see some sulfate availability issues coming from um, some of the residue breakdown that um, there's some things there. But um, I mean, organic matter really on our end is really the, uh, the big key. That's uh, what I, I tend to focus on more when I talk to growers, but it's not the be all end all. I mean, just kind of a simple rule of thumb we typically use for each percent organic matter. We typically would say about three to five pounds of sulfate sulfur would be mineralized per acre per year. So I kind of give you an idea, you know, three, four, five percent organic matter, kind of what the relative amount of, of 
sulfur might be released. But, um, you know, we have some issues with drainage, which can reduce availability. And it's it's more complex than I, I thought it was at first. Um, I was focusing more on organic matter, but that's kind of what some of the more recent research has been looking at, um, that and also carryover, because it is a, a negative anion. I mean, sulfate, which is taken up by the crop, can be leached, but it's not as leachable as nitrate. So when you look at it in terms of carryover, I mean, I, I tend to see pretty consistent carryover from one year to the next, particularly if you're talking about like a 10, 15 pound rate, maybe if you're looking at a, a lower rate of five pounds, something very small, that's probably not enough to carry over. But if you over apply it, um, you know, typically you'll see it. And that's one of the things looking at a lot of my early data, we could find some really nice yield responses in a lot of fields when growers weren't applying it. Now that growers are, well, some of those really um, large ones haven't necessarily been as evident in some of the studies. So it's, it, it's one of the things that um, I know it does build. And that's kind of one of the, again, one of the components I'm looking at right now is that carryover aspect. Yeah. So why don't you, you know what, why don't you paint a little picture on uh, kind of this, you know, you've had a, a couple of years, what, three, four years of this project. Uh, you've looked at different rates or uh, sorry. Uh, well, yeah. Rates as well as sources. Right. So um, you want to just kind of paint a picture of that research and, and I guess what the importance is of the source in terms of the availability of the plant. You already had mentioned, you know, we need it to be in that sulfate form in order for the plant to take it up. Of course, you can put it on as elemental or other forms. Uh, and why is that important, I guess? And then how does that play into the soil test side of this as well? If you, if you do get a sulfur soil test, you know, that's uh, I know one of the things that you often will mention, um, you know, how useful that is or not useful, I guess, for that matter. Well, as you know, Jared, as you said, there are two sources of, of sulfur that you're going to buy with fertilizer. One is sulfate, which is readily available. So that'd be gypsum, um, ammonium sulfate, I mean, gypsum, calcium sulfate. Uh, potassium sulfate's more expensive. It is available in some areas. Uh, we see some around here just because it's used in turf. So we can kind of get it around here. And also it's, it's sometimes used in potatoes because of um, limitate or I'm trying to limit chloride application. Elemental sulfur is cheap. And that's, if you look at it, it's a byproduct of the petroleum industry. So they've got a lot of it. So there's a lot of petroleum companies out there that are really interested in trying to find a use for some of it. Uh, the issue with it is, is it's, not readily available. I mean, it isn't going to leach, which I think that's where a lot of growers look at it, but um, it needs to be oxidized. And oxidation is a microbial process that has an optimal temperature and moisture. And here in us, for us in Minnesota, if we look at elemental sulfur, I'll get questions from growers on that about fall application, whether or not it's better because it gives it more time to oxidize. And it's really only the case if the temperatures are warm enough and the optimal temperature for a lot of the really good oxidizing uh, microorganisms are as close to 90 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit soil temperature. So you might get a little bit in the fall. Um, I mean, the issue though with it, it's like lime uh, with elemental sulfur that the size of the particle that you're applying matters greatly in terms of the speed of oxidation because elemental sulfur does not dissolve in water. You can get it in suspension. Um, there's some liquid products that have some suspension that we've tested but um, when you look at most of the products, um, like a Tiger 90, which is the most common product, is 90% um, elemental sulfur and 10% bentonite. And that bentonite clay is there as a binder um, to try to keep or to make it a lot easier to apply the material. And that's one of the issues with it is uh, what the bentonite does is it's supposed to um, absorb water, which swells up what they call a little pastille. It looks like a little disc. And uh, once it swells, it can fracture, fall apart, and disperse the, the smaller elemental sulfur particles. And that's one of the things we're looking at right now because we've been seeing a lot of issues 
with availability of that particular product is that incorporation of it um, isn't the greatest idea. Um, the company itself, they recommend leaving it on the surface for a couple of weeks to try to absorb water before you bury it. But if you're using it as a sulfur source, that's one of the things to be aware of. If you're, you're doing an incorporation right after application with a fall incorporation, uh, we've seen essentially where it almost looks like that product isn't even there. I mean, it's it, looking at, you know, only a quarter to half is available, particularly in um, higher clay soils. If you're, you're dealing with a sand or something that has greater porosity, um, not as much of an issue, but um, that's one of the the new what you were uh, you're talking about one of my new studies looking at sources as we're seeing pretty consistently is um the lack of availability from from tiger 90 and some uh consultants and growers have asked me if it's more of a long-term process that over time maybe if you apply one year is it available down the line and while that might be the case it's still looking like it's not quite as available so you've got to treat it differently i mean i think it's a fine product if you know what you're doing with it but you don't want to look at um, incorporating it right, in, right immediately after application. And if you're dealing with like a strip till system where you're banding, I would not be using it. Um, and that's one of the things, uh, one of the questions that's came up quite a bit at Wasika or one of the, when I was at a um, talking recently about some of this is um, timing, because a lot of people are asking about fall application with sulfate. And I think you can do it. Um, there might be some loss potential, but if you I mean, if you're dealing with a, a soil that's really, um, has some good internal drainage, I might avoid it. But in many cases, if you're applying 10, 15 pounds, it, it's probably enough, even if you have a little bit of loss with that, that it's, it's, you're, you're still going to be fine in the spring. So it really depends on where you're at, what your soil types are. Um, but in terms of, you know, sources, um, the only elemental sulfur sources right now that I see that tend to be somewhat effective are some of these what we call these co-granulated products, so like the microessentials, um, nutrients, MST line. Um, we've been actually doing a lot of testing with the MST, and I see pretty good availability with that, even with incorporation. And a lot of that has to deal with the fact that, particularly the MST product, it's a very small particle size, and it doesn't have um, as high of a concentration per the each of the granules you're applying, which helps a lot in terms of um, of the elemental sulfur because what will happen is again the you bury the elemental sulfur and it just gets in the pores and it packs it together and if it can't effectively disperse it's not going to oxidize very quickly so that's one of the things just know what you're applying know the limitations because really with tiger 90 that's the main concern is that you need to think about it a little bit differently when it comes to your applications in general with these elemental sources i mean fall i mean what's your kind of your, your feeling on that i mean fall application where you would have the opportunity maybe to leave it lay on top for a week or two before you incorporate it if you are doing tillage or, or kind of what's the recommendation, I guess, there. And um, I guess when I look at it or think about it, I think of it as kind of a system, right? I mean, it's it's one of those where, you know, jumping back between sources might not be, I guess it's harder to manage that maybe versus, uh, you know, like if you are doing an annual application or a semi-annual application of, uh, of an elemental source where you probably will have that kind of oxidation um kind of be more consistent, I guess, from year to year? Or kind of what's your recommendation there, I guess, in terms of these different systems? Well, Tiger Soil recommends two weeks. And that's really to get, and that's, you know, bar, and that's assuming that you're going to get some rainfall or something that's going to be able to absorb into that bentonite. So that's, you know, probably what you're looking at is trying to leave it as long as possible for that. I mean, we did it in alfalfa rotation and I, we, it's interesting, Jerry. I mean, we put on like, I put 120 pounds of sulfur 
on the before the first seating we buried it and um i could see it a little bit maybe in the first production year where it looked like it was giving us something but if you looked at it further down the line it was just getting absolutely nothing um from it compared to nothing compared well i haven't seen nothing i mean it's probably a good 50 percent or less we're getting out of it compared to some of the 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 we had the MST product and we are also testing a potassium sulfate or a sulfate source at that point too. So it's just um, the long term aspect. I mean, I think it's there, and that's what I'm testing now. I've got some studies where we did for four years. We made applications in continuous corn, annual applications of uh, five, ten, and twenty pounds of sulfur as MST sulfate and as um, Tiger ninety. Now I've cut the off applications at half the plots just to get an idea on what the longevity of what we've applied how long it'll last before we start running out of gas with that so i'm in the first year of that and it I mean even that looked like the tiger 90 where we applied it i was getting similar results for the residual versus the annual application so that makes me think we're probably getting most of our availability from what we applied previously not necessarily this year and that's kind of what i saw in the study initially is that you looked at the sites and there really wasn't any response the, the first year of application. But beyond that, there was something. It just isn't oxidizing quickly enough. Surface application, leave it sit for a while. It's probably better. I mean, the problem with that is with um, if you're applying with P and K, though, I mean, tillage can be a good tool at least to protect particularly phosphorus from being lost. So the two don't always marry up to each other very well um, with at least kind of what I recommend here in Minnesota. So it's it's a good idea, I think, with that fall application like you're talking about. Just leave it on the surface, give it a couple of weeks, and then hopefully it's enough to swell it up where it's um, going to break apart when you when you hit it and go through with the tillage operation. But would, like you said before, need some rainfall to get that, uh, that to expand and then break apart. Exactly. On that oxidation piece, I mean, is anyone doing work like this further south? You know, obviously we've got uh, some listeners down in southern Iowa and Illinois as well. I guess, is there any kind of work, uh, guess, I guess, as to how this might or might not change as you move further south? Well, I think your oxidation rate's going to be quicker. I mean, it, I think it certainly is. I mean, more temperature and the warmer temperatures you have, you're, you're going to get more oxidation. It's still a question of particle size, though, and that's the problem with it. If you bury it, you're still going to have problems uh, because... I said with that, what ends up happening is you'll get a lot of smaller particles that clump together and act like one large particle. And if you kind of, if you, anybody knows anything about liming, it's the same thing. The larger the particle, the poorer or the slower the the effect or the, the change in the pH. And it's the same thing about accumulating sulfate from that. So you're going to have the same issue with it. Um, I think you might have a better opportunity the farther south you go, at least to get some of that material oxidized quicker earlier in the season, which is critical because I think for us, our, our problems, what I'm seeing really is May for us. We're cold in May. We don't get a lot of mineralization. So we're really relying on what's there in the soil. Um, so we're, we're short because many cases, most of the sites, I mean, looking at my minimum application that I need for sulfur to get max yield is about five pounds. So it doesn't take a lot. So it tells me a lot that it's, it's mostly what that early season that what's that plant can't take up or isn't being supplied that becomes I mean, more of the problem. And I see that consistently in a lot of our, a lot of our fields, you'll see striping on the upper part of the canopy. I mean, I'm sure a lot of your, your, your uh, producers will see that um, where you can see some faint striping on there where I think the plant is just slightly short. Um, what I've seen with most of my studies in sulfur is as long as the availability picks up by about B5, you're, you're generally not, you don't have a problem as long as it can green up by that point in time. 
and I see that in some of my sites. I've got one site, um, uh, the site just south of the Twin Cities uh, at Rosemont, that will be horribly sulfur deficient until about V10, and then it will green up. And I'll go out there late. You look at the upper canopy, and you really can't see it anymore. But you pick it up and yield. So it just recovered too. It, it didn't recover fast enough with that. And then I got other sites that just look horrible throughout the season with that. But it's it, it's kind of amazing, and it really depends on when that mineralization picks up because our soils do have a great capacity to do it, but it just might be too late. That's where we need to be looking at applications uh, where it's it's more of an early season issue than it is is late season. But I think as far as south, you go farther south then that becomes more of an issue with overall availability because hopefully your mineralization should be quicker the warmer you are. Well, especially when we start to talk about pushing planting dates earlier, you know, and that's maybe part of this this equation too. You know, 50 years ago, we were planting corn a lot later when that oxidation maybe had already picked up too, so. And that's one of the reasons I think beans don't really respond as well is that it's just they're later planted and it just doesn't matter quite as much to them. Yeah. Very interesting. I think we'll, uh, well, we'll definitely keep tabs on how, uh, I guess how this research kind of turns out as you continue to, I guess, update us on it in the next couple of years. We have so much good content here. We're going to wrap this episode up and we're going to come back with the next episode to finish our conversation with Dr. Kaiser talking about some other fertility topics. We'll uh, talk about boron as well as zinc. With that, thanks for listening and we'll see you back for the next episode.